Hi there, my name is Paddy Buller, and this podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. For this special edition, filmmaker Posey Dixon and experimental musician Beverly Glenn Copeland discuss Copeland's extraordinary creative philosophy. At 74 and on his first tour, Copeland's pioneering ambient music of the late 70s and early 80s is now getting the recognition it thoroughly deserves. Now, I'm a great lover of Terry Riley, Laurie Anderson, Steve Reich, Brian Eno, and more recently, Caitlin Aurelian Smith. So if you like that sort of ambient electronic music, then Copeland's album Keyboard Fantasies is truly a game changer. No doubt about it. Incredible album. Um, Posey's film documentary on Copeland called Keyboard Fantasies, the Beverly Glenn Copeland story, has just premiered at the Barbican. And Second Home will also screen it this December 4th at our Clerkenwell site for our music series, Making Sound, Making Space, superbly curated by Ellen Pearson. So do check that out and all our other events at secondhome.io. I know I will be going to that screening for sure. There's no doubt about it. It's going to be incredible. A couple of books to recommend around that area. Musicophilia by the great Oliver Sacks and How Music Works by David Byrne. Uh, Two extraordinary books uh, on music and the production of such. But now over to Posey Dixon and Beverly Glenn Copeland. I have been making a, I've been lucky enough to be making a documentary about Glenn and his music for the past couple of years, which is why I'm here hosting this conversation today. Um, What I wanted to do today, because the reason that I first connected with Glenn's music and the reason why a lot of people report to have collected with your music, Glenn, is that it has a certain healing quality to it. And there's something about your personality as well, which is eternally healing and calming Um, and I thought what would be I was thinking last night what we could do in the 45 minutes that we have today and I thought it could be interesting to go through some tracks from each of the four records that have been re-released just listen to one track from each record because I was listening to a music on the train yesterday Glenn and the progression of your music over time is quite incredible because To me, anyway, it kind of speaks a lot as to who you were at the time that you wrote that music, what you were into, what you were were going through. And I think that when you listen to, for for me personally, when I listen to the music from that first 1970 release, Beverly Glenn Copeland, through to Primal Prayer, which is the latest record that you've put out, there's this incredible kind of transition from being I mean, it's the transition of someone's life, isn't it? And the, the music from the first record is, 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 uh, is vulnerable in some ways and it's very emotional. And then we come through to this record at the end, Primal Prayer, which is this like huge record of kind of, I don't know, universal meaning. And I feel like it really represents, for me anyway, it represents how you've kind of blossomed as a human. How do you feel about that? Okay, I will put it down this way. So the early days, the records were about sex and development, and then there comes a time when there's less sex and more development. And that's the you know, humorous way of putting it. But basically, I turned my attention from, from personal relationships to my relationships to uh, a larger reality. Yeah. Not that you don't have a larger reality in those personal relationships, you do. 
but 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 we are so focused. There's such a drive, and the, the, that that drive is essentially the the procreative drive that we have as beings for those those few years. Then after a certain period of time, that drive is no longer so intense. So your the the relational re, reality that you have it can potentially t turn into like looking to see. Oh well, what what am I? <laughs> you know, and what is this? <laughs> and what is my purpose in this, right? And so that's what happened. Yeah. Okay. So let's start. I'm going to play some music right from the get-go because I think that the way that I made the film about you was all based around music. So I thought yep. this conversation should go the same way. Okay. This record, this 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 track is called this from the first Beverly Glenn Copeland record, and it's called Don't Despair but it's the jazz version. And I hadn't heard this for a long time and I was listening to it on the train yesterday. So okay. I'll play a little bit to remind you. Beverly Copeland album. Ah, yes, right. Okay, yeah. When you wake up in the morning and your eyelids are frozen and all around your body your lovers lie broken I listen to this music now. That one is pretty, you know, that's that's pretty straight up. There's some things on this album that really, when I listen to it, it's like, oh my gosh, that's enough to make you commit suey it. It's so difficult, right? It's like, oh, it's so painful. But that's that's reality. That's that's life. We feel we when we're having pain, we we experience it really intensely. Yeah. But I'm really glad I'm not there anymore. But the thing that I thought when I was listening to this yesterday, and I was like, you're right, it's, it's heavy, you know, and the lyrics are, there's so much hurt in there, but there's still hope. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and mm -hmm. you're saying, don't despair. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to it, and I was like, you know, even, and I think that's something about your, the message that you put out in all your music is full of hope. Thank you for reminding me. Because I listen to that, I'm very... I forget about that aspect of it because I hear the pain in it, right? But that's right, it, it did have hope in it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that, that one was something that I, yeah, it really moved me when I listened to it yesterday on the train. So, so we're moving on now. So just to correct, that was from the Beverly Copeland record. Yes. And then yeah. the second record was released under the name Beverly Glenn Copeland. Yes. Um, and that has this track on it called Complaining Blues, which we used in the film. Um, and I love it. 
it's very, to me, this is very powerful. Okay. This song, so All let's right. have a little listen. That's a good question. <laughs> You're forcing are, me, Posey, to lyrics, really yeah. think about all these things. But the lyrics are take take me down to that loving place. Take yeah. me down, and then and then it says, it's all about leading you, leading you woman on. It's kind of like tempting fate, kind of thing. Well, I don't know. For me, it was you know all my songs were written to women, right? And it just felt like. I guess, because I don't really, the truth of the matter is it's really hard for me to pull up all of my feelings from those years. But, you know, it was hard, hard to get, for me, okay, well, I mean, I'll put it this way. For me as a transgendered individual who had yet to come to that understanding, even though at three I announced to my mother I was a boy, right? 1945, 19, no, when I would have announced that, it was 1947. Nobody would have paid any attention to that. They would have just assumed I was whatever. So that all got buried, right? So in my relationships in, um, as a, quote, lesbian, which I wasn't, was very complex, and very difficult, and very um, hard because I wasn't a woman who loved other women. I was actually a man who loved women, right? So there was a lot of my attraction to heterosexual women who would have responded because they actually realized I was male, but then needed all of the things that a male could offer them, which is children, security, and all of those things. So those kinds of, you know, those kinds of lyrics are actually addressing that issue, yeah. and which in, my, which in my life was a source of great pain. Yeah. And I think that I think with that with the lyrics in that one, in particular, when I listen to them, I think it, it sounds like a man singing to a woman. You know, well, it was. which it was, <laughs> which is why I think I picked this one out because what I also was kind of thinking about when I was going through this was how how music and art in general mm -hmm. is not only is the music that you're sharing with us helping us, yes, but it also the process of writing it and making it yes. was probably very healing for you oh, to and helping you work through who you are. Oh, totally, totally. And, the, and all of these young, er, early, early albums, because that was in 1970, both of those were written in 1970. I mean, that was, you know, I was, what, 26 years old? Oh, it was the height of, you know, passion and, and the desire to be with with someone and you know all of those things yeah and it was met constantly with right yeah right. and working through who you were right? and working through who i was yeah which of course i didn't really end up working through who i was because i didn't have the language to work through who i was for many years 
until many years later, right? Yeah, yeah. So there was a kind of a looping that was happening. But at the same time I was looping, I mean, I ended up in relationships, like I was in a one relationship for 13 years, which is like, it was, I was being a, I, there were spirit families happening, right? There were people that I was with, whom I'm still with, in the truest sense of the word, that we were, we were meant to travel earth together for a period of time and do things together and encourage each other and love each other and care for each other, right? We just weren't meant to be body mates. Mm. Yeah. No, I was thinking, I was like, I don't know. I think that for all of the, there's a lot of, there's a lot more awareness now of the whole idea of mental health and it being something that we all need to look after. Yes. But it's still something that's very much living within like the medical canon. Mm. And actually some of the money and funding that goes into the medical canon should maybe be funneled into the arts canon because... Oh, oh! Now you—I mean, well, you're, you're talking about the re, what the purpose of art actually is. It's actually to reflect who we are as whole beings through various ears. It, it's meant to connect with that with us in a way that's not about our cerebral aspect, but our more. I don't know, the part of us that knows but doesn't think about it. It's not about thinking, it's about knowing, you know, some, some aspect of ourselves that we are all the same. Art actually, whether you're talking the art of the palate, you know, which is cooking, which is, you know, th that reaches some aspect of us that is beyond, you know, our yak, 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 yak. <laughs> and, uh, um, Music does that, and dance does that, because all of us are musicians, and all of us are dancers, and all of us love whatever it is we, we conceive of to be beautiful tasting things. And, um, and what did I leave out? Several of the other art forms. Yeah. Yeah, they're, but they all reach into very, very precious places within that's, so they can talk to us. And, and, and get past our daily life of chitter chatter chatter of, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's when you say, when you talk about kind of music coming to you, do you want to talk a bit about your writing process? Sure, because, sure. Yeah, so you, you call yourself a receiver. Yeah. And yeah. it's always been the case. Always been the case. Do you want yeah. to explain a bit about? How that, how well, that works. I, th I think that all of us are receivers. We're all, we're all in the process of co-creating with the universe because we are the universe in its minuscule form, in this form. I, I don't know what the universe is. I mean, what I know is that it's huge, you know, too huge for me to contemplate. But it's also, I do know that it's, it's, it's a creative en en engine or creative energy, or a creative mind, or a creative, however you want to look at it, it's creating all the time. and never creates anything the same way twice. There's not one thing that's identical to anything else in the universe that we know about, anyway. So that being true, that means that all of us are receivers for a larger thing that gets narrowed down for the, in, for the individual aspects of the universe absolutely every person. And most of us only think of creativity as something that artists do, 
but actually every single being alive is cre creating at all times in some way, form, or fashion. It's just that our cultures don't, um, don't have forgotten that and don't celebrate that and don't, don't teach us that that is true, right? So I am tuned auditorily, very finely. And I, and I, I was born that way. I started singing according to my parents when I was three months old and the radio would go on. I'd start making sounds to go along with it and you turn the radio off and I'd stop, right? So I, it must have been affecting me, right? So, okay, so, so if you think of it as like a radio, I'm tuned to this tiny band here, right? And whatever it is that the universe wants to create through that band or whatever it is it wants to create, it sends that that information through that wavelength that I am attuned to. Everybody else is receiving something, receiving something, receiving something, but it's on a different band wave, right? So what's coming through me is for me or somebody like me, because if it, if it comes through me and it's broad enough and I don't choose to, to, to pick it up, it will go to someone else. I, I, I know of actual situations that are uncanny where a concept has come to someone who was a writer and this person fleshed it all out but then could, didn't have time to do it and, and a year and a half later met a friend of theirs at a party who proceeded to explain about the, the, the piece that, that she had just written, exactly the same piece with exactly the same character. So it's like the universe, you know, if it's not me, it's going to go, it's, it, because it intends for that to be heard. It needs for that to be heard, or we need to hear it, whatever it is. So it's sending stuff to me in this tiny little wavelength, and I pick up on it, and I can be just like in the middle of washing dishes, and something will come through, and it's like, ah, and I'll stop, and I'll run to my studio, and I'll try to put it down as best I can, and then once it's gone, once it stops transmitting, I look and see what it is and I have to learn to play it. Mm. <laughs> Even though I study classical music and I know how to put all of that down, it's like once I finish putting it down, it's like, what is this? That's, that's a C minor chord and then that, that goes to that. That's amazing. I wouldn't know to do that. And then it goes, <laughs> it's like, that's what it feels like, right? It's like, yeah. I, I, I couldn't, I'm not capable of having written that on my own. I know that when I, when I see what it is. And then when I see how people react to it, I'm but just, it's, yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's coming from, from a source. Yeah. But it's your skill in your classical training and playing music your entire life yeah. that's enabled you to be able to transpose yes. those messages. Because that's what, our, that's what our job is. Yeah. For each of us to understand what we are here to be able to offer to the world at large and to ourselves and to hone those skills. Whether I'm a carpenter or a plumber, whatever it is, I'm so needed, yeah. right? But I gotta hone my skills, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm gonna play a track from Keyboard Fantasies, which I think is a wonderful example of sounds coming in from elsewhere. This is Winter Astral. Oh, yes. This is truly, this is beyond me.
it's interesting you should choose this. I am currently trying to translate what this is because I put the music down somewhere I don't know where. And recently I've been wanting my, my group to be able to play this just because it doesn't have words and so they can just play it. And I'm listening to it and I'm going, what the heck is that? <laughs> I'm like putting it down and I play the chord. No, 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 that's not it. What is it? <laughs> it's like, what is it, right? It's so, and it goes off like that part I've got, but then it goes someplace else at the end. It's like, what, where, what is that, right? I'm struggling. I still haven't finished it. I've been working on it for six months. Can you recall that, that, that track coming through? No, I don't recall a thing about it. It just came through and I put it down. Literally, literally. It's got so many layers to it, it. and so oh. much. It goes off on these different journeys. Oh, on these different I journeys. No, it does, and and the sound of it feels like, you know, like I'm out in the star field, right? <laughs> it's like it's, it was one of those transmissions that was like, oh, okay, <laughs> and at the end of it is like, what is this, right? And I have a question about keyboard fantasies because it's. It's probably the most well-known of your records, and it's the record which has touched a lot of people of my generation. Yes. And there's this really interesting connection between the fact that you wrote that record in 1986, which is the year that a lot of the, you know, around the time that a lot of the people who are kind of obsessed with it now were just being born. Yeah. I, interestingly enough, the only people that I sold this record to were mothers who were playing it for those very children to put them to sleep at night. They would write me and tell me, oh, this music is so wonderful for my child. You know, my child sleeps serenely when my kid is listening. So now the kid is 28, 30, 32, 35, and they're going, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Probably because I were hearing it <laughs> somewhere, psychically anyway. My mom was putting them to sleep with it, right? It's, I find that really, it's like, it's just like a joke. You know, it's like the universe laughing. <laughs> and I think it's another, going back to the whole idea of us needing these tools to look after our mental health that aren't necessarily using the everyday linguistic ones. Yeah. There's also a thing like, it's, it's not everyone, of course, but initially the, the first people that came to me through this record was like a lot of men, a lot of boys. Who, we, who, were, who like need this record and it's helped them through a lot of really hard times, you know, anxiety, insomnia, depression, these kind of things. And I think as well that maybe there is something in the way that, again, as a generalization, I think women have a, have a tendency to have more kind of interpersonal relationships that have a lot of emotional talking in them. Totally. Whereas men tend to do things together. Yes, that's absolutely correct. If you listen to a conversation with males, two, three, four, five males together, they're all discussing the how and the where of things. How, because they're discussing how to hunt is what it is, right? You need this tool and this tool and that tool and you'll find the buffalo or here on this day, blah, 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 right? And you listen to a conversation with women, it's all about the emotions of things. And they're, you know, I mean, maybe they're discussing where you might get some stockings or some beautiful dress, but most of the time it's on an emotional level that they're communicating. And that's very, very, I mean, it's not true for any one, you know, one size does not fit all, but that is generally true. Yeah. And do you think, do you find, how do you find, given your 
you know, the beginning of your life where you were living in the wrong gender identity. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you have a particularly kind of nuanced experience of gender experience? Yes, totally. Because I was raised in the bosom of womanhood and within the circle of womanhood. But I really didn't understand women. But I got to see them up close and personal in a way that men do not get to see them, right? To see women. And so I understood their power. And I understood the fact that they are, that women are psychically tuned so sensitively, right? I loved what I got to find out about women. It was very helpful later. <laughs> because I knew that women were, were powerful. And the women in my family were extremely powerful. And the men were incredibly gentle. Powerful too, but gentle. Gentle enough to be able to be with really powerful women, right? It was a perfect setup. Yeah. So I really, 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 yeah, I got an, I, like I could do courses for guys because I got to live with women as, a, as quote, a female and see women in a way that men can never really understand unless they would, and, and even then, we can't really because we're really different. We, I, like I got to that to see that, but I don't think like a female. I think almost just exactly like most males. Really, when you get right down to it, right? And so, I too, even though I had that advantage, I had to learn to nuance my reactions and my, my, my you know, because it was really foreign to me in many ways, but I was familiar with it. Mm. Yeah, mm. it's quite beautiful, that reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, think that, I think that one of the things, when I was learning about your, your life story through spending the past couple of years with you and researching and reading and talking, one of the things that has really struck me and this comes to, I think something that I associate with you is the idea, I think one of the first ever interviews I read with you, which was from the 70s, by a writer called Judith Merrill, who I think is a Oh, yes, Judith Merrill, she's a science fiction writer. Amazing, she's a brilliant woman. Amazing yes, woman. Yes, but the, the title of that was like, you can be any, you can be any, anybody that you want to be. Yes. That was the, that was the first yes, thing. And yes, I yes. printed it out and I carried this when I couldn't find you because there was nothing about you on the internet, but I got hold of this article and I carried it around with me for ages because it wow, was like... Wow, you found that? Yeah. Oh, thanks, Judith. Yeah. Thanks. She was always a big she fan. She sounds like an amazing she woman. She was, was looking amazing. Her she was a science fiction incredible writer. Incredible writer, right? Yeah. yeah. She was the only science fiction, female science fiction writer forever, for the longest time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Really cool. Yeah, yeah she's well, quite she a beer. She's amazing. Yeah, she was a beer. Um, so shout out to Judith. But um, yeah, reading, and I think reading that and then when I looked into your history more and kind of put it in the context of what was going on with gender and sexuality at that time. Mm-hmm. It's quite incredible. You went to university at 17 in Canada when homosexual relationships were illegal mm-hmm. and invisible, mm-hmm. and you lived with a woman, and you had the, it was a difficult, difficult time, but mm-hmm. you had something in you to do that. Mm-hmm. And then even moving on through your life, you were, you were an out, and comfortable in yourself, mm-hmm. not the successful lesbian because you were in the wrong, the yes. wrong makeup. But you know, you yeah, had the strength to mm-hmm. be that. Mm-hmm. And then similarly, you came to the realization that you were a man, mm-hmm. and then you transitioned. Mm-hmm. And you're a trailblazer in 
in identity, really. And I was wondering if you had any insight into where that strength comes from, because I think it's something which I am like in deep admiration of. I think we all have that strength, but it depends on like whether or not we're able to show it has a lot to do with what messages we receive at early ages, right? And what models we, we see, right? The models in my home were very strong. And my grandmother, for instance, my grandmother, she'd take a rifle, she'd go out and she'd shoot dinner and come home. My grandfather, he didn't want anything to do with any of that, right? But he didn't have any problem with the fact that she did, right? So it's like those kind of models, right? Of like self-determination, of being who you really are. My parents, given within the context of their own, you know, very limited society in terms of their, what could happen for them as black people, just pushed it totally out. My mother ended up being a representative for early childhood education at the United Nations, traveling the world, right? I mean, you know, you know, she, she was born, what? She was the second generation out of slavery? And she ended up like that, right? Traveling the world. Like Philadelphia decided to make a sister city in China. They sent my mother as the head of the de delegation. Give me a break. I, I was so fortunate. I was given models of incredible strength. So when my parents went, oh no, you can't do that, I went, you gotta be kidding, <laughs> you gotta be kidding, right? You've already told me I can do whatever that I really want. So I'm gonna do it, right? And they were like freaking out, but it was because of them. It's because of, you know, of course I was brought up with, you know, I had a certain personality, but you can break a personality down. You can cause deep fissures in a, per in a person's being by the things you tell them constantly and the way you treat them. And, and most of us have trauma no matter what, but some of us have been traumatized incredibly in our home because of the limitations of what they were traumatized by and then on and on and on down through, the, through generations. And it takes generations to undo those kinds of trauma, right? And if we can even begin to undo some of the, that trauma, and we all have that in one lifetime, that's amazing. Because then we can turn to our own children and go, I'm not going to send that message to my kids, right? I'm gonna let my son know that he is a strong man, even if he's gentle, right? I'm gonna let my daughter know that she may feel as feminine as you know we can think of what that is, but what that is is not limited to wearing an apron or whatever that is, right? It's not limited to making dinner for somebody. You can be just extraordinarily feminine and go out and you know run the world. That's what you wanna do. You can be anything you, you want to be. You can be anything you want to be, yeah because all of us have that. And it doesn't mean that we all will be the same things, but we would all be some amazing version of what the universe has already given as this incredible, like the universe is, is, is itself a huge, huge, huge engine of creativity. So everything that it has created is that powerful, right? We're just amazing what we are, right? It's just that we're told we're not. So we're gonna start telling ourselves we are. 
and telling our children that they are. And our children are getting it. Look, the 12-year-olds are now blessing out, you know, the heads of state, saying, you know, no, uh-uh, right? Well, somebody told them, you know, you go for that. You, yeah. know? you do that. You're, you, 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 you know what's going on. Tell it like it is, right? I just look at that and I go, thank you. You know, we're growing. We are growing. This is what your generation has done for me, is given me so much hope. Because you all are coming out of a long spate of us being stuck in, in teenagehood, adolescence. I think that's one of the things that I, uh, when you talk to the younger generation, the youth, and you say, you know, we're so happy you're here, you're global citizens. I love to hear somebody from your generation talking about what is essentially what the internet has done for us. Yes. As a positive thing. That's right. And I think that there's so much fear of the internet with the older generation. Yes. Because it's change and change is scary. Yes. And the easiest thing to do is to recoil from it and to only paint it in a way in which it's a threat. Right. And actually you have got the wisdom as a 75 year old to say, no, look, you guys are connected. You are global citizens. You're aware of what's going on. You're aware of the repercussions of your actions in one place. There's repercussions in another. You're aware of history. You're aware of yes. musical history. You're aware of so much more. Yes. And it can be overwhelming. And it can be, you know, but, it, but it's so positive and I find it, so important for you to be a spokesperson for your generation as well, to recognize the positivity of it instead of just seeing it as a threat. Yeah, that's one of the things that happens when you get old. You start being frightened. And, it's, and that's why death was invented. <laughs> there comes a time, I like to say, you know, at the point where I go, no, no, that's terrible. It's time to leave. <laughs> Right, because, because I'm frightened of change. Every, everything comes to its, its end point where it can no longer be flexible. That, that's, that's, that's death, right? That's the way, the way life goes. But, you know, unfortunately, a lot of us in my generation have looked on, at the internet and seen the negative aspects of it without understanding that everything has negative and positive applications. Everything, every emotion, every everything has negative. So we look at the negative applications of it, not, not seeing the positive applications. And your generation has taken the positive applications and, and you've seen the negative ones too and you've like put up you know, guards and you know, ways to try to screen that out and make that not happen and whatever, the best you can. You can't screen it out and of course it does, it does grab some people, that's, that's inevitable. But, but by and large, you've used it as a tool to understand that the human family is just one family. And that yeah. is profound. The speaker's you see? talking. I think they agreed. That was a very important statement. I think the other thing that the, that the internet's been a really powerful tool for has been to enable people to see different identities and different iterations of what they can be. Yes. That's very interesting that you say that because I didn't think about that. So it, can you elucidate that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that when I was doing, you know, when I was speaking to 
uh, queer elders in Canada around when I was trying to get some context because one of the challenges of making the film about your life is that there is not uh, there isn't records and archives and endless amounts of information out there about what was going on in the 60s and 70s. And so I got in touch with some kind of queer elders in Canada to ask them of their experiences to kind of give context. Yeah. And the thing that kept coming up was that, you know, if you were, uh, say it was a lesbian woman, it's like if you were a lesbian, there was no way to know your community because it was all hidden, you know? So you couldn't know who you were because there was nobody to copy. There was very underground networks that were so hard to penetrate. Yes. So you had this feeling that you, you, your identity was, was something you hadn't reached yet, but you, it's so hard to found it and it was so painful to find it because it was invisible, there was no role model. Yes. Whereas now that I think one of the things that's been so powerful about online communities is that, is that younger kids can, can connect with people. They can be living somewhere very rural or very isolated with, with maybe parents that don't agree with their identities, but they've got this ability to connect to a whole family of people outside of their domestic space or their hometown or whatever. Thank you. That can support them, you know? Yeah, that's absolutely very true. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the internet. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah, the internet. Okay, we're going to have one more track from Primal Prayer. I think let's play it first and then and then we can talk about it. So Once again, it just goes to show, I wrote that with, you know, in the usual way, but I never really related to it other than as one piece among many that was talking about the 
variations of the way in which people relate to the infinite, right? And everyone ended up loving that piece so much, I had to revisit it to understand what was it about this piece, right? And it's like, I'm starting to get it. But I, I might as well be in the audience in terms of like, to these pieces because they have effects that I couldn't possibly have thought about. What was, so when you wrote that record, Primal Prayer, because mm -hmm. it's an incredible record, I implore everyone to go out and buy it and listen to it. But um, tell us a bit about what was going on when you wrote that. I had almost died from a sudden bowel twist, which 50% uh, of the people who have this bowel twist, when it happens, they do die. And um, <clears throat> I uh, was in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, and um, uh, being with my mom, trying to take care of her. She was elderly at that point, and um, we were really good buddies by then. When uh, I woke up with this bowel twist, and it took two days for them to be able to analyze what was wrong, and they only were able to analyze what was wrong because uh, one of the members of my chanting group who chants nam myoho renge which is what I chant, raced to the hospital when they found out that I had been taken to the hospital on the second day. I'd gone the day before, but they'd sent me home to take some pills, which I couldn't swallow, right, whatever. And um, they came into the room and they sat down beside my mother and all of a sudden this young woman went, I don't know what to do. And she said, I'm just going to chant. And she's going, nam myoho renge nam myoho renge nam myoho renge nam myoho renge And I was in a state of septic shock. I was like, my whole body was shaking, and then it would stop for a split second. And then my whole body would start shaking again, and it would stop. And when she did that, I came to, and my mind cleared. And at the same time, a nurse came into the room. It's very interesting. She came in two seconds after my mind cleared. And she said, we're going to, we're going to do an exploratory first thing in the morning. I said, I'll be dead. I'll be dead by then. Right? And all the blood blanched from her, her face. And she ran out of, and they came back and wheeled me in, and 15 minutes later, and I had a, I had a foot and a half of dead intestines inside that was killing me, literally. I would have been dead probably by the night, by that night, certainly by the morning. So, but when, but the experience I had was that even though it wasn't a near-death experience in that kind of way, I had this experience when I woke up from it, it was like the whole place was rainbowed. And it wasn't because of the drugs or anything, because I'd had an operation before and it was not like that. The whole place was rainbowed and I had this memory or this understanding, I'd had it while I was under, that all of life was love. That's what it was. It was based on love, right? And in that moment, right, I literally felt that I was reborn up out of the ashes of the person that had died, right? So I call that Phoenix. And then I started, this music started coming through. And because I was up out of the hospital and back running in like seven days, because I actually had a very, I was actually very well, but this thing, this thing had happened, right? So, so I'm, I was back into it and, and all of this music started coming through and coming through and coming through and coming through. And what I realized is that it, w it was me saying whatever your, your quote religion or your spiritual practice or no practice at all, whatever it is, it's all coming from the very same place. It's all coming from, so it was like, 
I, like one of them was written for Rumi, which is you know, which is Islam. One was written for for pure Christianity, which was this one. One was written for this and this and the, all of these different things, right? And somehow it's like the rainbow of of all of us coming from that very same root that gets translated according to our culture, right? And that's what that was. It's like pure euphoria, the record, you know? Oh, I'm really glad you experienced it that way because that's what I experienced it as when I was getting that, when it was coming through. And some of it's very personal too, right? Has, it not, doesn't just have to do with me oh. talking about, you know, like um, the one um, uh, La Vita, where I'm talking about, you know, what, what you know, my, the struggles to, to undo my own pains, right? You know, you know, and then my mother's voice, because this is what she used to say to me. She used to say, enjoy your life, darling. She would always say that to me, enjoy your life, darling, right? Ultimately, it was that that was like guiding me. It's like, enjoy your life, darling, right? Yeah. 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 I think, yeah, there's something in those, there's something in the lyrics of, to hear somebody with a voice like you, you know, tell you that just so simple, you're marvelous, you oh, know, yeah. because we all we all focus on the things that we feel are uh, are not good about ourselves. Yes, yes, know? yes, yes. And I think that there's something that I've learned from spending time with you is that it's far more powerful to focus on the things that you feel good about. Well, because when we feel good about ourselves, because self-love is as important as, it's, in Buddhism, there's, it's called compassion for self and others. So if you're only compassionate for others and not compassionate for yourself, then really you're not fully, you're not fully understanding that you and others are one and the same. If you're only compassionate for yourself and not compassionate with others, you're not understanding that you and others are one and the same. So we have to develop compassion for ourselves and, and not get all hooked, hooked up in the, the things we've done wrong. Of course we do things wrong. According to scientists, the, universe, the universes are being born and disappear in split seconds. I'm sure this, per, this particular one was the perfect magic. <laughs> And it went, oh, this is like everything's in balance. And right? so, you know, we try and we, we have to hear that we are essentially gorgeous beings. That's what my Buddhist practice has taught me. That, that the core of who we are is that we are amazing beings. And that the part of us that acts out of anger and when it's not appropriate or, or all kinds of other things is just the pain that we've experienced in this lifetime that we haven't been able to clear. Superb. Do we have one last message before we have to finish? Because you're a busy man these days. You've got a whole day of photo shoots coming oh, up. Oh, yeah, it's really quite extraordinary. It's like, wow, what is this? But what, there it is. Right? What happened? Yeah, just go with it. So any last message? No, no. go out and have a beautiful life, everybody. And you'll struggle, because it, 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 life is about struggling, but life is also about overcoming our struggles and, and seeing the beauty and the purpose of the struggles, you know? And if you, know, if you don't get it this lifetime, there'll be lots and millions of other lifetimes. We'll get it, we'll all get it bit by bit, right? It doesn't, we don't all have to figure it out in this one lifetime, right? Exactly, yeah. no yeah. hurry. No, no hurry. hurry, yeah. All right, thank yeah. you very much, Glenn. Thank you, Cozy, so much. Wow, extraordinary stuff and just so nice to get that sort of insight into the creative philosophy and brilliance of somebody like Beverly Glenn Copeland. 
a big thank you for filmmaker Posey Dixon to come on board for this. Very much looking forward to seeing her film, which will be screened this December 4th at Second Home Clerkenwell. See you next time. <laughs>